Hello, and welcome to Health Views with Deb Friesen, MD, a podcast about health and wellness within today's healthcare landscape. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Come join me as we'll together explore timely topics that impact people, businesses, and communities. Now let's check out today's view. On today's episode, I'm excited to sit down with my guest, Dr. B.J. Fogg. B.J. is the founder and director of the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford University, where he directs research and innovation. B.J. studies human behavior with a focus on how to easily build healthy habits by tapping into positive emotion. In January 2020, B.J. published Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything, a breakthrough New York Times bestseller which has given millions of people the confidence and hope to create happier and healthier lives with just one small change at a time. So I actually was at one of your boot camps in 2014 and took tons of notes. I still have them. I've got pictures of us. Um, And at that time, I remember asking you about a book and it wasn't high on your priority list. So, so yeah. what happened that you decided that the world needed a book on tiny habits? Yeah, it would have been nice if I'd written it then. But <laughs> yeah, the I felt that way. It's book. like I wouldn't have had to take so many notes if you'd written it then. So, yeah. And the book is a better book because I waited. But I think that at the time, tiny habits didn't feel like, like it, it was something I was doing as a hobby. It wasn't a, an official, it wasn't part of my Stanford lab. And it wasn't, I didn't make any money from it. So it was like this hobby. It's like, oh, I'm coaching all these people in habits. And I used to laugh and say, this is a really sophisticated, time-consuming hobby, but I'm helping tons of people, so I'm not going to stop. And, but there was a moment, uh, this is about three years ago, you know, and a lot of people said, where's your book? I want a book. I want a book. And I was like, eh, I'm too busy and I'm doing all this other research and I'm innovating in all these ways. And I knew how much work a book takes like this. And then one night I had a dream uh, that I was flying to give a keynote somewhere. And in the dream, something happened. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but I was fully convinced that I would die in a plane crash. So in that dream and in the moment that I truly believed I was going to die, my reaction was not fear or anticipation of the pain or what would happen to my little dog or my partner. It was this deep sense of regret, uh, just and almost shame. And it's like, oh my gosh, I have not yet shared this work with the world in a way that I really should have. And then I woke up from the dream and I was like, oh my gosh, that was my reaction to dying. And in the morning, I told my partner, I said, Denny, uh, I had this weird dream. And my reaction was, I was just deep, deep regret for not having written a book about behavior design and tiny habits. And then it was about two weeks later uh, that a person approached me, who's a book agent, who had done books for Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. And, and you know, I'd been approached by agents and publishers before, but the timing was right. And Doug, the agent, was a really good fit. So all of it aligned. And I was like, okay, boom, I got to prioritize this. I've got to pause things. I've got to just you know, do what I need to do to get this book together and into the world. So I just, I wasn't 
that eager. I mean, because it felt like a hobby and just something I was doing on the side. Yeah. And then I knew the the other things I would have to stop doing to write a book, the research and innovation. But that dream was very clarifying. It was that became the priority. There's no way I could deny that. I'm glad that happened because I'm glad to have your book. Are you still doing research? And if you are, what are you having fun studying right now? <sighs> so many things. Um, about six weeks ago, I started the Tiny Habits Research Lab. So I'm still directing my lab at Stanford, which is the Behavior Design Lab. So yep. when my interest changed, we changed the name of the lab in 2011 to the Behavior Design Lab. And we have projects going there. And then we have projects going to the Tiny Habits Research Lab. So in each lab, we have three projects going. Um, on the Stanford side, uh, the project that is becoming the priority project for us is training professionals in, in climate change. I mean, people whose job it is to help training them in uh, how human behavior works and teaching them how to create successful products and programs. Uh, and the idea there is that through Stanford, Stanford is a platform to offer a curriculum free to people who work in climate action and climate change that they, so they can get more effective. Our, we've run two pilots on it. It's gone really well. And our research of the people who are signing up for this training suggests, at least right now, the number shows that seven, these professionals on average spend 17 hours each week trying to change people's behavior. So almost half of their time, but they have no training in behavior change. So there's a, there's a urgent need there and a really big one. So I'm really excited about that. Um, on the tiny habits side of things, in the tiny habits research lab, we have a medical doctor from the UK who is doing research on how to use tiny habits to help patients not use their emergency inhaler, so patients with asthma, but instead use the, uh, the therapeutic one, the, the corticosteroid. I think I'm saying that right. You are. So well done. So that one's really exciting because, you know, that habit of using the rescue inhaler, that is, that wires in as a bad habit. There's reasons it wires in. So she is trailblazing, like, let's use the tiny habits method to help people manage their diabetes uh, in the way that's preferred rather than the emerge, uh, the rescue inhaler. So that's a super exciting project going on there. And then there's four other projects, uh, but those are some examples. Oh, those are like four other podcasts. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so habits. Are they just habits. a different form of learning? What is special about calling something a habit? Yeah, what a great question. And Deb, it's a really hard one, actually. Um, habit is an ambiguous word. Um, there is a use of the word, like in Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, where things like sharpen the saw and begin with the end in mind are not really habits as I define it. Those are general principles, general guidelines. But we use habit to mean those things. When I talk about habits, I mean a specific behavior like pouring a glass of water before uh, before a chat like this, and you do it automatically. You do it without thinking or fairly automatically. Uh, so you're not like deciding. You just go on autopilot and do it. So it's specific, and you do it quite automatically. And that's that's how I define habit. Now, they really matter, at least the specific habits, because... If you have 
you know, good habits or the right habits. It helps you be productive. It helps you be healthy. It helps you reduce stress. It helps you achieve all these things, and it can feel quite effortless. And you're not making a big decision. You're just doing things automatically. So you can achieve big things by designing the right habits into your life. And there's other reasons it matters, but in some ways that's, you know, that's way up there on the list. You can achieve big things by designing the right habits. And you can free up your cognitive load, that brain load that you have from decision-making and redirect it to things that you consciously want to have to think about instead of that background all the time when it isn't a habit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a really important uh, side effect of having it because yes, you're exactly right. So one of the most profound sentences I thought in your book was, once you remove any hint of judgment your behavior becomes a science experiment. And I'm thinking about how this also must be relating to talking about climate change, that when you can can be dispassionate about a subject, even if it's your own behavior, it allows you to see things differently, approach them differently. Um, Can you talk about why removing that hint of judgment, even for ourselves, is so important as we approach habits? The the bigger challenge that we all face, and it's cultural, uh, at least in Western culture, and it's probably universal, is how, how much people criticize themselves, how harshly they judge themselves. And it turns out that shame and trash talk, self-trash talk, and judging yourself harshly does not help you change. It feels like it does, and our culture sets you up to be hard on yourself, but that is not the best way to change. And in the book, there's a thread throughout every chapter, or this idea is threaded throughout every chapter, is you change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. And that's what the tiny habits method is. Not only is it a way to design habits uh, reliably and form habits quickly, but that last part, forming habits quickly, depends and hinges on your ability to feel good about what you're doing. And so part of the tiny habits method is learning how to recognize your successes no matter how tiny. And not only do you learn to do it for yourself, the better you are at that, the better you are at doing it for others and helping them feel good and wire in habits that help them. Um, and so in some ways, and I didn't realize this at the beginning, of course, Deb, and even when you came to my boot camp in 2014, it wasn't. I knew Tiny Habits was about increasing people's confidence that they could change. And I knew it worked at that point. I mean, I'd already coached at that point probably 20,000 people. Um, So I I, I knew it worked, but it became clear later that, especially in, it's just crystal clear to me now, Tiny Habits really is a method, yes, for creating habits, but it gives people hope. And that's the primary purpose of the Tiny Habits program today is to bring people hope and confidence they can change and some skills that they can change. And with that hope and confidence, then that opens the door. That's what becomes transformative. And that's really what the subtitle, so the subtitle of the book is The Small Changes That Change Everything. And boom, if you can give people hope, which is a type of confidence, then they react differently to so many other things in their life. And that's what changes everything. 
I agree. And I agree with that sense of hope that runs through there. And I think it's so needed right now. We're tired. We're having new behaviors all the time. We're dealing with new challenges. Um, I remember early on reading where people felt guilty that they weren't taking advantage of all this time to change their lives in a big way. And yet when you can help people with a tiny habit, all of a sudden, ah, I do get more confidence. Things can still change even within the constraints that we have right now. So let's dig a little bit more into what is behavior. And I know that you have the ABCs of behavior change. What are those? Okay, great. Yeah, ABC. I didn't design it to be ABC, but it just turns out to be that. So there's three parts to the tiny habits method. There's three hacks. Think of them as hacks. You're hacking. You're designing this new habit into your life by doing these three hacks. Let's start with B. B is behavior. And you take the behavior that you want to become a habit and you make it super tiny. So for example, uh, if I want to hydrate more, drink more water, uh, rather than saying drink a glass of water, drink multiple, the tiny version of that is simply pouring a glass of water. So you make it so simple that you don't really need any motivation. Um, and here on my desk, uh, I do have a glass of water with lemon and some mint in it that I got out of the garden. Next, you figure out where does this new habit fit naturally in your life? What does it come after? And that's the A. A can be for after, but it's also for anchor. So I, so you look for a routine you already do and you say, well, where does pouring water, what does it come after? that I already do? Does it come after I start the coffee maker? Does it come after I start the dog? But in this case, it comes after I dial into a meeting or launch a video conference like what's done here. So after I launch a meeting, I actually go out to the kitchen, fill the glass of water, put it on my desk. So there's the habit. After I launch a meeting, I fill a glass of water. And then, so that's A and B. And then C stands for celebration. There's the emotional component. So as you're creating the habit, what actually creates the habit, it's not repetition. If you look at the research, it does not support the idea that repetition creates habit. That's not true. And you can just look at the research people cite to see that they're confusing correlation with causation. What causes the habit to form is emotion. So the emotion you feel as you do the behavior is what wires it into our brain and makes it more automatic. So as I'm forming the habit of pouring the glass of water, uh, there's a technique in tiny habits we call celebration, so that's C, and it's something you do to cause a positive emotion inside yourself. So you are hacking your emotion, you're self-reinforcing by hacking your emotion. So you're not leaving the habit to chance of, oh, it's going to make me feel good or feel successful. You are deliberately causing yourself to feel this positive emotion, especially the feeling of success. And so that's the three hacks. You make the behavior super tiny, you anchor it to something you already do, you design it into your routine, and then you wire it in through this emotional um, hack that we call celebration. So I still do a celebration hack from our boot camp together, which um, mine was good for me. And you can't see me if you're listening, but it's my hands up by my head and a smile. 
Um, and so every time I do my um, medicine ball workout and I finish it, I do a good for me. And then usually this is done in um, hearing range of my husband who says, good for you, honey. And so we celebrate together. And there's a lot that of ways to do great. this. Um, yeah. A couple things that I hear in there. One is um, that this behavior needs to be something that you like to do already, um, that that when we're looking at behavior change and why it doesn't last, a lot of times it's because maybe you never really wanted to do it that much anyway, or you bit off yeah. something too big. And then the end is really that whole celebration of, yes, I did it. And I'll tell you, BJ, I find myself even of things that aren't habits that I'm still wanting to celebrate through my day, I will do a good for me or a yes. Um, and especially so if there's an emotional barrier and I'm like, oh, I just don't want to do it. And I'm like, oh, I, I'll celebrate if I do though. And so just yeah. even that little hack in and of itself, not tied to a habit has become part of my living my life um, and finding reasons to celebrate every day. That's great. I mean, that's a really good reflection on you and who you are, that you've generalized uh, that self-reinforcement, that celebration to other aspects of your life. And that seems to be a pattern for people that have learned the skills of tiny habits. So yeah, you use it to wire in habits, but you can use it at any point of your day when you want to make that behavior more likely. Let's say, for example, I'm walking along the beach and there's a piece of trash and I just pick up the piece of trash and I put it in my pocket and I'm like, good for you, BJ. Or I think about, you know, very deliberately, wow, this is achieving a higher purpose of helping to save the planet. So that can be a celebration too. It's just thinking about a higher purpose and how picking up a little piece of trash helps you get there. So even though I didn't design it as a tiny habit recipe, I can celebrate that behavior, which makes it more likely when I run across a piece of trash in the ocean or on the beach or on the side of the street that I'll pick it up. And it will motivate me to do it as well. So it serves those two functions. It, it's a really, about 20% of people seem to have a problem with the celebration technique. And 20% are just totally natural. And then there's about 60% in the middle. Um, so not everybody gets this. And I'm sure some of the people listening to this, oh, man, that's like crazy. Well, you might be a resistor, but there's ways to learn what are the right or what are the best celebrations for you. And when you find celebrations that are authentic and you like doing and you learn to apply them, you dab it really gives you a superpower. You're developing a superpower to create habits because the better you are at celebration, the faster you can create the habit. I mean, it's not a function of how many days. The habit formation is determined by the intensity of the emotion. So if you're really good at celebrating, you can wire in habits quickly. And then next, and you, you talked about this in your own life, and I was delighted to hear it. When you get good at celebration, you generalize it to other parts of your day. And that puts you in a position where you can have positive affect or positive emotions whenever you want. And you can counteract negative emotions or you can wire in, you know, random things like picking up little pieces of trash on the beach or whatever. So it does give you a superpower. I, I'm hoping that this technique of celebration, uh, and we're doing some research in my Stanford lab on it, some additional research, and we're doing some research also in the Tiny Habits Research Lab on it. But I'm hoping that this skill of celebration, of self-reinforcing through emotions, 
will become just part of the culture. And I would love to see us teach it in fifth grade, yep. you know, across, you know, across the board. I would love to see us teach it and support people in their workplaces. Like, here's how you celebrate. And we celebrate each other. In fact, one of the, uh, one of the, uh, studies we did in a hospital setting with nurses and helping them reduce their stress, teaching them tiny habits. One of the big takeaways from the study was yes, they formed habits quickly and yes, they were able to reduce their stress and yes, it had positive effects even on their home life. But they also started celebrating each other while they were, you know, in their, their area of the hospital. And it just changed the whole flavor of how they were interacting and it helped them deal with the, the stresses of, you know, being a nurse or in the emergency department. Those are the people we worked with. And for everybody who is dealing with all the stresses we have right now, looking for those celebrations can help us deal with the stress of living in a pandemic world with everything else going on as well. Yeah. Deb, let me share one more example on this. I got an email last week on this. A parent wrote me and she has a son with ADHD and he's 11. And so many things have not gone well uh, for him and their family and they just struggle. And she says, oh, she wrote me this pretty long email. And just thanked me and basically said, this is the first thing that actually worked for my son. We now as a family recognize the importance of celebrating. Um, and in Tiny Habits, the book, I call that emotion shine. So that emotion you feel when you feel successful, I called it shine, which is, there's no other word for it. So I got to name it. And so she said, shine is now part of what we talk about. We help our son feel shine. We recognize that so often he just didn't feel shine. He felt the opposite shade. And so now that's become not only something the family understands that they put into practice. And it, she said it's just been the game changer for her that she's been looking for for years. And of course, that made me feel so good. I mean, I felt so much shine. Yeah, absolutely. You have, like you said, done a lot of research around this. And you've actually even come up with a model, the FOG behavior model, where B equals MAP or MAP. So would you tell us what all those letters mean and yeah. how they actually come into designing our own tiny habits and how we can use those as levers when we're when things aren't working the way we want them to? And, and this is a little harder to do because we can't yeah. see you. You can't draw it out for us. And I know yeah. it's a very visual model. Yeah. You know, and so the behavior model came before tiny habits. And so this this truly was just a gift. And it wasn't like in one moment, but there were these flashes of insight that probably happened over the course of a couple of years. And it is the fundamental uh, model for how all behaviors work. It's a universal model. And uh, it sounds pretty simple, but um, it's like an answer to a riddle. If you don't know the answer, it's very confusing. But once you see it, like, of course, and it goes like this, behavior, any behavior, happens when three things come together at the same time. There's motivation to do that behavior. There's ability to do that behavior. And there's a prompt. So let's say, for example, um, uh, last night, I wanted to call my friend Dorothy. She's 92. She loves reading. She loves exciting ideas. And she's really, really sharp. And I have a friend coming to Maui that's a very, very successful best-selling author. And I was like, so I wanted to call Dorothy. So the behavior was call Dorothy 
and line up a gathering if we can for December with this friend coming to the island. So that's a behavior called Dorothy. So was I motivated to the behavior? Yes. Did I have the ability? Well, not during the day, but I had the ability in the evening, right? Because during the day, I'm really, really busy, and I was had back-to-back meetings. So I had motivation ability. So I had ability in the evening, but then I didn't have a prompt. You know, a prompt is the reminder. But knowing uh, that no behavior happens without a prompt. I mean, I could be sitting on my lawn, watching the sunset, and hanging out with my partner, and I watch the geckos. That's what I'm doing. I have still have the motivation to call Dorothy. I have the ability, but without a prompt, I don't do it, right? right? So what I did to design the prompt is I told my partner, Denny, oh, remind me this evening to call, to call Dorothy. <laughs> yes, I could have made a post-it note. I could have made a pop-up calendar reminder. I could have done lots of things. Denny, was, Denny was your reminder app. <laughs> Denny is my reminder to prompt. So, so I designed it. So this isn't a habit, but every habits and more broadly, any behavior comes down to motivation, ability, prompt. And if any one of those things is missing, you don't do the behavior. So with prompts, you don't leave those to chance. In tiny habits, you use the anchor or existing routine to be the prompt. And with a one-time behavior, like calling my friend Dorothy, um, Danny is so, he remembers stuff. And I wouldn't forget. So I, so, so it happened. I called Dorothy. She was delighted. We're going to move it to the next level and we'll probably have an island-wide opportunity for people to, uh, and what we're going to talk about, Deb, is this. Uh, the topic and this, this relates, right? We're gonna, um, we're gonna talk about how the language of food influences our behavior. That's the topic. This and is going back to your him. roots. Look at you going back to the yeah. language. <laughs> yeah. And he's, he's an expert on food and, you know, um, functional medicine and foods and also the business of food and how that's been set up in, and so, and then, so I think it'll be super fun to talk to him. And interview him. But anyway, that's so the point is the behavior model is those three things motivation, ability, prompt. If anyone is missing, you don't do it. And you can design so those things happen. So when does a behavior become a habit? What a great question. Um, There is no threshold. So, So to set it up, and if there's one thing I could add to the book, and I couldn't add it to the paperback version. This morning was the last meeting on the paperback version. You only can make the smallest of changes. Yes. Would be a graphic that has a big circle that says behavior. And within that circle, there'd be a smaller circle that says one-time behavior. That's like calling my friend Dorothy or registering to vote. And a circle that would be like temporary behaviors, what I call span behaviors, which means, oh, I'm going to call my mom every day for two weeks. And then the circle that's habits things you do over and over. So habits are subset of the larger category of behavior. There is no clear dividing line between a behavior that you do kind of reliably and one that's fully automatic. It's just a matter of degree. So there's not a moment where it's like, oh, pouring a glass of water wasn't a habit. And then on day 21, suddenly it is a habit. There's no line like that. It's, it's just how automatic the behavior is, which is just a spectrum. And so that's one of the problems with the word habit. Again, not only does it can it be used for just abstract things, but for the specific behavior, it's 
not like it's a habit or not. It's weak habits and then solid habits and very strong habits. And I think it was actually for Kaiser Permanente years ago at one of the conferences at the far end of the spectrum, I put reflex, you know, so the mm-hmm. most extreme habits. And I was um, speaking and pointing out that, no, we don't want healthy choices. We want healthy reflexes, right? Where people aren't deciding, you know, I'm going to eat this healthy thing or this unhealthy thing. They just reflexively reach for the healthy thing. So that was kind of the point of that talk was to say, yeah, I know we talk about healthy choices and that sounds nice. But what we really want is healthy habits and even more so help healthy reflexes. Yeah, and that's exactly right. So one of the things that I learned, um, again, about reinforcing those habits is the idea of rehearsing. Yeah. <laughs> you are going right to the one of the most controversial things. That's so important. So tell me more. Why is it controversial? Well, because it's so new. It's so new. And let me explain the concept. And it, it's this. So let's take the pouring the glass of water habit. If so, you design the habit. You actually, you literally write out, we call it a recipe. After I launch a meeting, I will pour a glass of water. And that works for me because I have a little like 15 seconds of time. So that turned out to be the right recipe for me. If I found myself not following that recipe, you can revise it. You know, that's part of the process. Well, maybe that's not the right time to pour a glass of water. But if I thought it was well-formed, then to wire it in, you actually go through the steps. You rehearse it. So I would like pretend like I'm launching a Zoom meeting or dialing in, and then I would pour the glass of water and I'd go, good for me. Or I'd look at the water and think how it's going to hydrate. I would celebrate it. Yep. And then I'd pour the water out and I would do it again. I'd repeat the sequence again and I'd repeat it seven times probably. You know, I don't think you need to do it 20 times and three is probably not enough. So about seven times. So what you're doing is you're drilling the sequence with a celebration. And that what you're doing is you're accelerating the speed of habit formation by rehearsing it. Now, it strikes people as crazy because it's so new. But if you understand that it's emotions that create habits, you're giving yourself opportunity to experience that emotion over and over within a few minutes to help wire it in. Um, the bigger picture here, and I outline this more in my book, is that habit formation is a skill, a lot like driving is a skill. And there's sub-skills behind it, just like driving. You've got parallel parking. You've got emerging into traffic. And when you understand that habit formation is a set of skills, then the idea that you would rehearse something makes total sense. But nobody has really shown the spotlight on the fact that the behavior change or habit formation is a skill. Um, so once, hopefully, the culture and the understanding around human behavior shifts to where it's not, it's not willpower and it's not repetition and it's not just a simple little technique or having an app, it's you develop these skills and then you can get better and better. Then hopefully the idea that you will rehearse to wire in a habit quickly will just be obvious and natural. But I know right now it strikes people as a little crazy, but I'm going to predict it will be it will be just common practice in 10 years, maybe in five. Could we do for the listener a recipe 
with a, oh, yes. with a celebration yes. so that people do feel like, oh, I know something, I learned something, and I'm hopeful that I can walk away from listening to this conversation, that I can make a change in my life. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so in the back of in the appendix of my book, I put 300 different recipes for tiny habits. Inside the book, I refer to a few, and I only prescribe one. There's only one I prescribe. And then I was like, create any habits you want. And oh, by the way, there's tons in the back. Um, I'm going to say, Deb, just give me a number. Just give me a number, and I'll read one of them. (laughs) Four. Number number four. Okay. Um, After I start the coffee maker, I will get out the lunch boxes. Okay, so this is a, this is in the section. There's a section that's like tiny habits for working parents, and there's 20 habits there. So this is what. So after I start the coffee maker, I will get out the lunch boxes. So this parent, you know, wants to fix lunch. Notice it's not fix lunch. It's just get out the lunch boxes, which is the starter step for preparing lunch for herself or her kids. This is lunch boxes, so probably kids. And so she, he or she can create that as a habit. So when they first start doing it, you know, they start the coffee maker, they get out the lunch boxes, and he or she could do a little dance. They could think about how they're nourishing their child. They could go good for me. They could even put a big smiley face sticker inside the lunchbox. So when you open it, you see a smiley face. I mean, there's a bunch of ways. Um, that would be a tiny habit recipe. And then you got to find a celebration that works for you. I mean, also, there's a 100 different ways you can celebrate right next to this. But that would be a tiny habit recipe to help you more reliably make lunches uh, for yourself or your kids. And the interesting thing about this particular one is getting out the lunch boxes is a starter step. And once you do that first step, it usually will lead to you doing the whole thing. In other words, taking the first step can be uh, a domino, the first domino in the sequence of things. So you don't say, after I uh, start the coffee maker, I will make lunches, because your brain's going to see that as just too hard, like, oh, that's hard to do, and you uh, you avoid doing hard things, you self-sabotage, but it's like, oh, all I have to do is get out of lunch boxes. You almost trick yourself <laughs> by just designing the first step, whether it's pouring water in a glass or getting a lunchbox. And I want to go back to that concept a little bit of almost tricking yourself, because when I've seen other things um, for exercise, for instance, you know what, just say you're going to put on your shoes and then you're going to find that your shoes are on and you put on your coat and you go for a walk. And I think that sometimes that actually turns into a sabotage that it's like, but I don't want to just trick myself. I want to build a habit. And that feels like too much if if what you're trying to do is trick me. And is it okay to sometimes just put on your shoes, BJ? Oh, yeah, for sure. Now, if, if your kids are depending on a lunch from you, then maybe not. <laughs> but for, for, for something like drinking water or walking, yeah, you, you've got to be, I think, um, and I talk about this some in the book, but your health can go a little further. Be, be real with yourself. If, if, if you put on your shoes and you don't feel like walking, you go, good for me, I did the habit, success. Okay, so one of the things in the tiny habits method, there's so many, as, as, as hopefully people can hear, this is not a summary of the old stuff. This is a radically new way of thinking about behavior and designing for us. So it's not just summarize the old stuff. In fact, I'm, I'm uh, 
fighting a little bit, actually a lot, against the old stuff, which doesn't work very well. So one of the things in tiny habits, whether it's flossing one tooth, not all your teeth, it's flossing one tooth, or doing two push-ups or pouring a glass of water, is you don't raise the bar on yourself. So as you succeed in flossing one tooth or doing two push-ups, you don't say, okay, now I'm going to do five and ten and raise the bar. I mean, that's like the traditional way of thinking. Right. If you raise the bar on yourself, you will eventually make it hard and you'll eventually fail. So you just set the bar low and you keep it low. And then when you want to do more, even on day one, you can do more. You can make lunches on day one. You can floss all your teeth on day one. But you you count anything beyond tiny as extra credit. So you're viewing the fact that you actually got out the door and walked or the fact that you actually took lunches or you actually drank a glass of water, that's extra credit. And you think of it as like, wow, I'm the kind of person that goes above and beyond the minimum. So that's helping you feel, that's helping your identity shift. Like, oh, I'm an overachiever. I'm a person that does more than the minimum. But those days when you're super busy or you're not feeling uh, up to it or you're stressed out, and all you do is floss one tooth or two push-ups or just pour the glass of water, you don't drink it, that's okay. You can still, you still chalk that up as a success. You used a word that I'm really curious about and how it intersects with tiny habits, which is identity. And I yeah. think that that's so important when we think about becoming someone different, even if it's just a little bit at a time. So how does that actually feed into tiny habits? Um, it's something uh, we, my team and I measure every week and we have for about six years. So there's a free five-day tiny habits program. It's what I launched in 2011 and did a bunch of research to optimize it. We're still having ways that we make it better and better. But one of the questions is that after people do practice tiny habits by you know, Monday through Friday, they, they do an evaluation on the weekend and it's, they fill in a sentence that says, after doing tiny habits, I now see I'm the kind of person who, I'm the kind of person who, and they fill in the blank and they can write anything they want. The answers turn out to be, I'm the kind of person who can change. I'm the kind mm -hmm. of person who can follow through. I'm the kind of person that can envision my future and work toward it. So Deb in some ways, and so we don't measure like, you know, how much of their identity changed. Like there's not a, a way to quantify that. But I'm going to say that within five days, people can have a substantial shift in their identity. Like, oh my gosh, I'm the kind, I mean, just the fact that, and it's not like we gave them like a rah-rah pep talk to think they're the kind of person who can change. They say I'm the kind of person that can change or follow through or form habits or tackle any challenge in my life because they just saw evidence that week, day by day, that they were doing habits and wiring them in. So it's them seeing evidence of themselves changing that then leads to them thinking about themselves differently, having a different self-concept. Yeah. And I think that that's so important, especially when it does come to healthy habits. I'm the kind of person who puts fruits and yeah. vegetables on my plate first, um, those kinds of yeah. things. And, and related on the flip side, I'm the person who can say no to uh, a cookie invitation or an extra drink or what have you. Mm -hmm. And once and then that identity 
then has these big ripple effects on even things that aren't habits that just, you know, you start behaving, acting more and more consistently in line with that emerging identity. You just brought up two things that I think sometimes people don't identify as habits in that they're sometimes associated with breaking habits, which Mm -hmm. is I can say no to that cookie, um, those kinds of things. And I loved the metaphor that you had in your book around bad habits or things that you don't want to do anymore, which is there's that groove that exists, but imagine your new behaviors are snow falling over it. And I just thought that that was so helpful of a metaphor to imagine what really needs to happen is not getting rid of or breaking that other thing, but replacing it with something. And I know that you have some advice about that as well. Yeah, there's, um, so there's a chapter on this, and in the appendix, there are three pages of the flowcharts that maybe the three pages of the book I'm the most proud of. So I'm not sure people think of the appendices as being the best part of the book, but in this case, those they, two pages. They can be, uh, yes. Let, let, let me just give an example. So let's say, for example, uh, somebody wants to stop drinking or drinking so much, and they decide, well, at business and social events, I'm just not going to, I'm, I'm going to drink water instead. So if the host comes up and says, hey, you want a glass of wine or, you know, here's a cocktail, the, the tiny habit recipe is after I'm offered alcohol at a business event, I will say, no, thank you. I'm sticking to water tonight. Okay, so that's the game plan. I will say, no, thank you. I'm sticking to water tonight. Now, the first few times you do that, you may have to go, good for me. I'm sticking to my game plan, right? You might have to self-reinforce. You might have to celebrate that really hard. Because you may, you know, like a lot of this, like, oh, my God, I need to take the edge off. I need to loosen up. I really need to drink. But you've decided this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to say, no, thank you. I'm drinking water tonight. And so celebrate that really hard. With time, that response to being offered a drink won't be a big deal. You'll just say, no, thanks. I'm drinking water tonight. And you won't have to celebrate it because you've, you've, you've wired that in. And um, so that is a way that you can use the tiny habits method to reduce or just entirely eliminate some of these behaviors that aren't helping you uh, succeed in the best way. I love that. And, and you also use the metaphor of a knot and, and that a lot of times these really complex behaviors have a lot of different knots in them and you have to untangle yeah. one at a time and keep working and evaluating. And I think that that goes back to your, your scientific hat and dispassionately kind of looking at What's working? What isn't working? And maybe it's not that this isn't working, but there's another knot that needs to be untangled. Untangled, yeah. So, and, you know, when I say three pages of flowcharts, I know that might sound really complicated to people. Or when we talk about analyzing what are the tangles in this knot that you want to untangle, people, that only takes like two or three minutes. I mean, we're not talking 30 minutes or three hours. It's just sitting down and saying, we'll keep going with the alcohol one. Somebody says, wow, I'm drinking too much, and I either want to stop or cut back. Well, write down. What are all the instances that you drink? Oh, I drink at cocktail parties. I drink at planes. I I have a cocktail in the evenings at home, and so on. Pick the easiest one, whether that's, oh, I usually have some wine on the plane. That's the one I'm going to start with. Or maybe it's the going to the mixer. Don't pick them all at once. You know, you don't take a knot and then untangle everything at once. You pick the easiest one first and you undo that one. So let's say 
you think, oh, flying on planes, yeah, that's easy, you know. Um, so that's the one. And then the next one might be the cocktail party. And then the next one might be the weekend barbecue where your neighbors, you know, bring out all the beer and then, and then, and so on. And so the, the further you get in untangling the knot, the more able you are to do the next one. The ones that were in the center and seemed impossible at the beginning. Just like if your headset for your phone is all tangled up. If you had to like untangle it in one instant, you can't do it. And so that's like the idea of breaking the habit instantly. You don't break it, you untangle it. But you know if you pick the easiest tangle in your headset and take that out, and then you go to the next one, and then you go to the next one, bam, pretty soon you get to you're done. You get to the hardest one. So it is a process. And that is a a different um I mean, the words matter. So break a habit versus untangle habit. Untangle sets the right expectation, and it's a process. It doesn't mean it's going to be magical or, or instant, but you know if you do the process, it's like untangling your phone headset, you're going to get there. Yep. And that's, that's I think, the most helpful way to think about uh, bad habits. Now, if it's truly an addiction and life-threatening, I say this in the book, go get professional help, Okay. Uh, but things like social media and for some people drinking and other kinds of things, certainly they can untangle the habit. But I just want to be clear with addictions and things that are life threatening and endangering, go get the right professional help for those things. Um, is there anything that you wish I would have asked you and I haven't? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a little more practical. Like, what's the difference between tiny habits and behavior design? Okay. Probably that. All right. Yeah. So um, a little more practical, maybe not as um, uh, tactical, but the book is called Tiny Habits. And in the book, I explain the tiny habits method in more depth than anywhere else. Yes. But it's a specific method in a broader range of work of mine that I call behavior design. So behavior design is a set of models and methods, models I've created, methods I've created, um, that work together. And, you know, one of the models we talked about, the fog behavior model, one of the methods is tiny habits. And so what I see, and this is why I call my lab the behavior design lab, it's the broad kind of revolutionary way of, uh, or at least non-traditional way of looking at how behavior works and how you design for it. So the implications are, uh, in for professionals, and this is what you attended, Deb, is I call it behavior design boot camp. So you're not really learning the tiny habits method. You're learning all the tools in behavior design you need as a professional to create any product or program to change a behavior or to optimize something that you have, right? So that's behavior design. It's like you can take on any challenge using those tools, whereas tiny habits is a specific method. And yes, I have a training and a certification for that, but that's just about the tiny habits method. It's not the broader landscape of behavior design, but that's for people who want to use that exact method and use it in various ways. So that distinction, I don't think is entirely clear in my book. And this morning's conversation with my editor, she's like, oh, I don't see why this is needed. And um, her name was also Deb, by the way. And I was like, Deb, the reason this is needed is people are confused. They're coming to my boot camp. They're seeing if they could send their teenager to my boot camp to deal with, you know, social media issues. And it's like, no, my boot camp's for professionals. Tiny habits are for everyday people or 
for coaches and trainers and you know professionals that want to use just that method. So there's a distinction. Um, and I probably created the problem because when looking at doing the book for Tiny Habits, I was like, this is my moment to really sketch out this broader thing that I call behavior design. So it's a result of probably I created the problem, but there is this distinction between Tiny Habits and then the broader work that I call behavior design. I think they're so complementary, but they are confused. And I think that you're right, that there is a need for both of those things that people want to know how they can do things individually. And there's, there's people who want to know how can I influence my employees in a bigger way to not burn out? How can I bring them something that is different? How can I how can I arrange my cafeteria so that they actually make better choices without having to think about the fact that they're making better choices? How yeah. do I set up my incentive yeah. plan so that it becomes self-rewarding or this is something that they like versus just something that I chose for them? So I think that they're incredibly complementary and the principles are very similar, but you're right. Yeah. One one is a method and one is a model. And I think that um, we need to think about that in a different way. One of the other lines I took out of your book, um, and I wrote it down for myself, I thought it was so lovely, um, is that one of your goals is to strengthen others in all my interactions. Yeah. And I have to say that I, I really feel like people listening to what you've shared today will definitely feel strengthened They'll feel like they have some knowledge, which doesn't change behavior yet, but they have, if they apply it, it's a skill they can learn. And I think that you've given them hope. And mm-hmm. again, I think that there's there's joy that runs through everything that you do, BJ. So mm-hmm. thank you for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it myself. Thank you. Well, I, I feel fortunate. And like I said, I feel you know, the obligation to share and you inviting me and us doing this is exactly what I feel like I should be doing. So this is bullseye for me. So thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right. Have a wonderful night. Bye-bye. Thanks to my guests for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Health Views podcast with me, Deb Friesen. I hope you'll share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family members who are interested in diving deeper into meaningful and relevant health and wellness topics. I look forward to the next conversation, and we'll share another episode of Health Views with you soon. Take good care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the listener's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professionals.